back this evening. Take your Bibles. Turn to Daniel chapter number 6. For any of you kids, there are activity sheets on the front here if you would like to come get one. Maybe some of you adults need to come as well. I won't mention any names, Missy. <clears throat> some people are so jealous, you know. You give something to the kids, the adults feel like they need to have something as well. <coughs> Daniel chapter number 6. Message that I've entitled, When Doing Right Gets You in Trouble. What does it take to make a difference for God? How can one live in such a way as to leave a lasting testimony for God? Well, those are questions that every Christian should contemplate. In the life of Daniel, we find some answers. I never really thought about it this way, but Daniel did not make a big splash in Babylon. There was no huge revival among the Jews while they were in Babylon. There was no national repentance in Babylon as there was in Nineveh. Just two people that we know of, two kings, came to trust in the true and living God. Here's another example from history. Great examples found in the life of William Carey, who is considered the father of modern missions. He said of himself, I can plod. I am a plotter. I can persevere to any definite pursuit. In 1793, Carey and his family became missionaries to India. Carey's early years of missionary labor were miserable. In December of 1800, after seven years of missionary labor, Carey baptized his first convert, singular, first convert, after seven years of ministry ministry labor. By the time Kerry died, he had spent 41 years in India without a furlough. His mission could only count some 700 individuals of the multi-million dollar, million uh, population of India. But he had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, and social reform. But his greatest legacy was in the worldwide missionary movement of the 19th century that his life inspired. As we start this evening, I believe that we have to first ask ourselves, who is Darius? Here in chapter 6, we are in the times of the second kingdom that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, that of the Medes and Persians. We know from secular history that Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. But according to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1, the new ruler's name was Darius. Now, who was Darius? Since that name is not mentioned outside of the Old Testament, some critics assume that the Bible is wrong. But there are several plausible answers to that problem. 
Some argue that Darius was another name for, for Gubaro, whom Darius appointed as governor over Babylon immediately after the fall of the city. Another explanation, and I believe the correct one, was that Darius was his name among the Medes and Persians, where Cyrus was his name. I mean, I said it just wrong. Darius was his name among the Medes, and Cyrus was his name among the Persians. But we should remember, as we noted in the last chapter until recent years, critics also debated the existence of Belshazzar until archaeological discovery confirmed his existence. Let's look at Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and we'll look at Daniel favored by the king. If there is any story from the book of Daniel that most people know, it's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. But as you know the story, sometimes we read right over the story, and because we're so familiar with it, we don't come away with anything new. And so this evening, I really want us to talk about application, application for us as believers today. So if you would... Look at chapter number 6, verse number 1. It pleased Darius. And by the way, I looked that up uh, online and asked how to pronounce that. And there are three different pronunciations. So I may use them all three during the course of this message, just just so you know. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps over over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. Daniel not only survived the fall of Babylon, but he quickly rose to a position of prominence. But Daniel's rise to power under Darius did not rest upon his remarkable accomplishments of the past. We are told that Daniel distinguished himself among the other officials of the king. I believe Darius recognized not only Daniel's wisdom, but his integrity and his faithfulness. Here was a man he could trust in a leadership position who would not cause him, he said, to suffer loss. Recognizing his unique abilities, Darius planned to promote Daniel, placing him in charge of all the commissioners and the satraps. Which brings us to the second part, and that's Daniel was framed by his enemies. Verse 4 says, And so the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault. Because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Well, the problem there in verse 4 is enemies put Daniel's life under the microscope of extreme scrutiny. And we're certainly familiar in our own time of the scrutiny and dirt digging that takes place whenever someone is nominated for a high office. We certainly have experienced that in our country at this very time in the, as Congress held a confirmation hearing for Brent Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court. How many of us have 
lives that could bear that kind of scrutiny. If we <clears throat> were the un, under the ones the ones under the microscope, and we had private investigators investigating our lives, how many of them could, how many of us would anticipate that the investigators would come back with the empty hands and say, "Sorry, you might as well quit digging on this person. Their their lives are utterly." above reproach. And that is exactly what Daniel's enemies did. Yet it is apparent that his exemplary life did not win him friends on all sides. Instead, his faithfulness to God won him some powerful enemies. One of the reasons that Daniel was hated was that which was revealed to us in John chapter 1, and that is that light always exposes darkness. When compared to Daniel, none of his contemporaries could measure up, and his enemies hated him for it. But no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't scrape up any dirt on Daniel. The last part of verse 4 says that when his enemies tried to find fault with him, they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. He saw his job as a platform upon which he could demonstrate his faith in God. Stories told that a number of years ago, an elderly man and his wife arrived by train in the city of Chicago. It was a stormy night and their train had been delayed. It was after midnight when they finally arrived at a downtown hotel that they hoped to find a vacancy. The young clerk on duty that night was a man by the name of George Bolt. And he explained that because there were three different conventions going on in town, their hotel was full, but he'd be glad to check around and see if he could find one in some other hotel. And after several calls, it was clear that there were no empty rooms to be found. So the young clerk said to the couple, I can't send a nice couple like you out in, in the rain on a night like this. Would you be willing to sleep in my room in the basement? It's not large, but it's clean, and I don't need it tonight because I'm on duty. The couple gladly accepted his offer. The next morning, the man tried to pay George personally, but the young clerk refused. Then the man said to George Bolt, you're the kind of man who ought to be the boss of the best hotel in America. Maybe one day I'll build one for you. The young clerk only smiled and said, I was glad to be of service. Some years later, George Bolt received a letter with a train ticket to New York City. He was met at the train by that old gentleman who took him to the corner of Fifth Avenue and 54th Street in Manhattan. And he said, this is the hotel that I have built for you. I want you to be the manager. George Bolt stared at it in awe and said, you're joking. But it was no joke. The old man's name was William Waldorf Astor. And that's how George Bolt became the first manager of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. If you visit the Waldorf Astoria today, you'll find a portrait of George Bolt in the lobby, a tribute to a clerk who showed integrity and went the second mile. Wonder what people 
would say about us when they see us at work. Twice in the king's words to Daniel, he remarked how God, how he served God continually. His enemies first scrutinized his professional life. And then they scrutinized his personal life. And their conclusion was that there was no charge that could be brought against Daniel unless it pertained to his religious life. Yet it is those very character qualities that brought him into conflict with his contemporaries. Daniel's godliness was a threat to the other officials because they used their positions to enrich themselves at the king's expense. They knew that Daniel could not be bought nor could he be expected to be silent. So their difficulty is outlined in verse 5. Then the men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. When it says in verse 4, Nor is there any error or fault in him, that's not to imply that Daniel was actually sinless, but that he was a man of great integrity. So much so that they came to the conclusion that, they could, that he could not be trapped into evil. But they also knew that he would be faithful to his God in all circumstances. So they came up with a plan in verse 6. So Daniel's enemies came before the king. It says, so the governors and the satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius... Live forever. All the governors, notice that, all the governors of the kingdom, administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together and established a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, the King Darius signed the written decree. Of course, they lied when they said all the governors have consulted together. We know that's a lie because Daniel was one of the governors, and he most certainly was not consulted. The conspirators appealed to the king's ego. And Darius fell right into their scheme. Who wouldn't want to be thought that they were the mediator between men and God? And that is exactly what they fed to the king. Third, we see Daniel's faithfulness to God. We see it first in his prayer life. Verse 10. And now Daniel knew the writing was signed. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. While the the king may not have thought about the implications of that new law, which he obviously did not, Daniel did. The law was passed into effect made Daniel or made Darius the mediator between all gods and men. But in the privacy of his room, Daniel 
may have given some consideration to how he could get around that new law. What could he have done? What are the alternatives that Daniel faced when he learned of this new law? He could have obeyed and made all his petitions through the king. He could have appealed to the king to change the law. He could have stopped praying for 30 days. He could have changed his custom and prayed somewhere else. He could have prayed silently as he went about his duties and no one would have never known. Or he could have limited his prayers to thanksgiving and praise and simply not submitted any petitions for 30 days. Well, I believe as we examine Daniel's life, we see some keys to a dynamic prayer life. First of all, he had a, had a specific place. It says in his upper room, he had a place where he prayed. In his room with the windows toward Jerusalem opened. Now, one thing that comes to our mind perhaps is, was he praying toward Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem was to the Jews what Mecca was to the Muslims. No. No, no. As it will be revealed in chapter 9, he was praying for the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple because at this point in history, it's a pile of rubble. He had a specific, specific place. He had a regular time, three times a day. Three times a day. Perhaps based on Psalm 55, 17, which says evening morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. The Jewish day did not begin at sunrise. The Jewish day began at sunset on the previous day. That's why he started at sunset. Our text says he knelt down on his knees. In spite of the fact that Daniel was now in his 80s, he got down on his knees to pray. The Bible doesn't command us to kneel when we pray. There are several prayer postures mentioned in the Bible. Kneeling, eyes uplifted toward heaven, standing, arms raised, or a combination of all of them. It is interesting that the one posture that most of us adopt, bowing our head and closing our eyes, is never mentioned in scripture but I really don't think the posture is that important I ran across this little humorous poem I think that can convey that message it says the proper way for a man to pray says Deacon Lemuel Key the only proper attitude is down on your knees no I should say the way to pray says Reverend Dr. Wise is standing straight with outraised arms and wrapped and upturned eyes Oh, no, no, said Elder Snow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with his eyes fast closed and his head contritely bowed. It seems to me that his hands should be clasped in front, both his hands pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell into Hodgkin's wells head first, said Cyrus Brown. And both my heels were sticking up and my head was pointing down. I made the prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed while standing on my head. 
I believe he probably did. He also had a consistent habit. Perhaps the most important part of verse 6 is found in those last seven words, as was his custom since early days. For Daniel, prayer was a regular, consistent habit. It has been said that new habits are hard to make, but once they are made, they are hard to break. Daniel's prayer life was so consistent that his enemies literally could pick the time to gather outside his window to catch him in prayer. The question might be for us, if the government issued a law saying that it was against the law for us to pray for 30 days, how many of us would miss it? I don't know what the future may hold for us as Christians in America, but if the trend continues, our government is going to infringe more and more on our God-given right to pray, telling us where and when we may or may not pray. My advice to you, be prepared to face the consequences. Don't ever be afraid to, sh to pray publicly, but make sure that you aren't doing it for show. Make sure it arises out of a faithful, consistent, private prayer life. That's what Daniel did. He went to his room. He opened the window toward Jerusalem. That is, he wasn't ashamed to be seen or heard praying. There was a spiritual sting operation. He had been set up, and there they were. They caught him praying. His prayer, even though it was against the law, made a powerful statement about his devotion to God. Beginning in verse 11, we see his predictability. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke, and he heard these words. He was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored until the going down of the sun to deliver him. I have read that one of the reasons this is important was because Persian law was that the man, a man was to be executed on the same day in which he was sentenced. So he had until sunset. The king at this point realized he had been tricked. The king was distressed. I believe he was both angry at himself and at those who, who tricked him and he spent the remaining daylight hours trying to find a way to deliver Daniel from the lion's den. Daniel's enemies were certainly not going to let this go. So in verse 15 it says, these men came again to the king saying, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. They said, king, you don't have an option. You must carry out the sentence. So forth, Daniel was fed to the lions. So, verse 16 says, So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Oh, reluctantly, the king has given the order for Daniel to be brought and thrown into the lion's den. But before doing so, he spoke some words of encouragement to Daniel. It says, but the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Now, 
The king's final words of Dan- to Daniel are a commendation for his faithful and constant obedience to God. Does the king truly believe that his God will deliver him? We'll see. Verse 17, then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now, let's not underestimate the danger here. A male lion can grow to be over 10 feet long, including his tail, and he can weigh over 500 pounds. A grown lion can kill a 150-pound gazelle with the swipe of one of its paws and then jump a three-foot fence with that 150-pound gazelle in his mouth, a very powerful animal. But fifth shows us that Daniel was protected from the lions. We see the distress of the king in verse 18, and it appears the king actually suffered more than Daniel did. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no no musicians were brought before him, and also his sleep went from him. Now we can be sure, I think, that Daniel prayed in the lion's den, but most of all because simply it was his habit to pray. He didn't need to start praying because he was in an urgent situation but because of the habit of prayer was well ingrained in his life. Now what the king discovered is found in verse 19. Then the king arose early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel, saying, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you? From the lions? Well, <clears throat> dawn brought an end to a long and fitful night for the king. And quickly he made his way to the lion's den where he called out to Daniel. But the king's anxiety during the night proved that the king's faith was, no, was not really real. Not real because the first words out of his mouth were, Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you. It seems that the king's earlier words about Daniel's gods were based entirely on the power of God's of Daniel's God as compared with the other gods of Mesopotamia. Now, we see the defense of Daniel in verse 21. Then Daniel said to the king, "O king, live forever." My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him and also a king I have done wrong before you. But why did God save Daniel? If we read Hebrews chapter 11, we know that God indeed delivered many men of faith, but also many men of faith also died. I believe in this particular case, he was delivered because it vindicated Daniel's faith and it displayed God's power before the king. The king was delighted at the outcome, verse 24. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him 
and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury, whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast him in the den of lions, them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they even came to the bottom of the den. There was no doubt there was some pleasure that the king gave in the order to remove Daniel from the lion's den. And perhaps with a corresponding amount of anger, he gives the order that those who have maliciously accused Daniel should be thrown in to the lion's den. I suspect part of it was not on Daniel's behalf, but on the king's behalf. One thing you don't want to do is trick a king who has total and complete power. The account of how the lions devour Daniel's false accusers kind of knocks in the head those skeptics who say, well, Daniel was delivered from the lions because there was something wrong with the lions. Well, apparently not. According to Leon Wood, the details of the lions consuming Daniel's accusers were given to show how great the miracle of Daniel's preservation was. The lions were not old or without interest in human flesh. They simply were kept from inflicting the same sort of horrifying death upon Daniel by the presiding messenger of God. Verse 25, we come to the last part of our study here. Darius honors God. It says, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall, stand, shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heavens and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The king's decree is eerily similar to that of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. I cannot personally conceive of these words coming from anyone other than a believer in the true God. The only thing that puzzles me and maybe is a warning sign here is that he still says that it is the God of Daniel. The decree, like that of Nebuchadnezzar, is addressed to all the people of his kingdom and perhaps anyone else who would hear and heed it. It acknowledges that the God of Daniel was sovereign. Darius declares that Daniel's God is a far greater king than he is and that God's kingdom is much greater than his earthly kingdom. He is the one, his God that is, who delivered Daniel. By inference, he is also the one to whom men should righteously address their petitions. Since God has done what the king could not do in delivering Daniel. God is the one 
who men should worship and the one to whom their petitions and prayer should be made. I believe, as I said at the beginning, that everyone wants to make a difference with their life. They want to know that somehow they made an impact for Christ. Daniel has demonstrated something that we can all do. Sometimes we look at the great characters of the Bible and say, I can't do that. I don't have that skill. I don't have that, uh, those gifts. Uh, that's not possible for me. But as we look at Daniel, we see that he demonstrates something that all of us can do. We can live a life of consistency and integrity and that that is all that is necessary to make a lasting impact for God. To be sincere, consistent, and living a life of integrity. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for each one that's been so faithful to come out tonight. And thank you for the reminder to us that we don't have to have some really off-the-wall gifts in our lives, some talents that would put us above and beyond what other people have, but that we as just common, ordinary individuals living our life for you, if we live our lives with consistency and integrity, we can make a difference, that we can live a life that's pleasing for you, and we can live a life that has a lasting impact in this world. Thank you, Lord, for continuing to minister in our lives, continuing to care about us, and continuing to give us your word so that we can live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have an offer.